0: today concerning this man who had this golden opportunity. The characteristics of the rich young ruler are known to practically everyone here. Those of you who have read a Bible at all, anyone familiar with the New Testament knows about him. It's interesting that one record of the gospel tells us that uh, he was young. Another tells us, Luke, that he was a ruler, a person of authority. All three tell us that he was rich. Mark's account seems to give us vivid details, such as Jesus' heart warming to him. Jesus looked at him and loved him, the King James Version says. Mark tells us that he came running to Jesus. It must have taken courage for a person who was of the ruling class, because the ruling class people by this time had already mustered considerable animosity toward the Lord Jesus, and he was not held in esteem amongst the leadership of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the religious bureaucrats, and the aristocracy of the church. The common people, it is true, heard him gladly, but he was by this time not only much loved, but much hated by certain groups of people. And so for a ruler, a person who would have been the president of his synagogue or the member of some important council or committee. To come to Jesus in a public manner in this way must have created the attention of a great many people. His wealth was evident to these rustic fishermen who were Jesus' disciples. Remember that those who followed Jesus were for the larger part working class men, smelly fishermen, of people who were not of the upper class. And here they see a man whose clothing tells them right away that he is a rich person, who see upon him jewelry that marks him out as a person of, of means. And to see this man in his youth Running toward Jesus and falling down quite literally upon his knees in the presence of Jesus and beginning to ask a tremendously important question good master what must I do to inherit eternal life? How many people do you know today who are rich who are young, who are in places of authority and power, are running to Jesus to kneel humbly before him and ask such a question as this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life must be understood as life not simply that does not end, but a life of a certain quality and a certain kind that does not end. Salvation in its fullest and truest sense. And yet, this is what we see here in this young man who runs to Jesus in such a way as this. Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus counters with a question. Why do you call me good? None is good save God alone. Now Jesus is not here denying that he is one with God. He does not say to the man, do not call me good. But he asks him a question. Why do you call me good? Do you have some inkling of who I am? You remember he had revealed himself to that woman at the well as the Messiah. I that speak to thee am he, is what he had said to her. Nicodemus who had come to him had said that we know you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. So Jesus wants him to think. He wants him to think about who he is. Do you think about Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Is he simply a purple-robed creature that you've seen on a Sunday school poster or in some little Sunday school book that you had at one time or another? Is he a living reality? Is he someone who enters into the decision-making process of your life Is he one of those who tells you and speaks to you about what you will do with your life? What your attitude will be toward other people? What your attitude will be toward your possessions? What your values will be as far as sex is concerned? The films you go and see? The television programs you watch? The jokes that you tell? What is he? Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke of what is called cheap grace. And he accused the church of being guilty of peddling cheap grace. And he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in this book he indicts the church for not speaking frankly to people who will come and follow Jesus of the tremendous cost that's involved in following him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer died at the age of 39. Just a few days before World War II was brought to its close, he would have been liberated by the Allied forces. But the Nazis were so determined that he would be put to death that he was marched out to the gallows and hanged just a few days before he would have been freed at the age of 39. When he speaks of costly grace he knows whereof he speaks. He had been in the United States of America and had achieved quite a reputation as a scholar and theologian and could quite easily have remained here had he chosen to do so. But Karl Barth had written to him a letter telling him how greatly he was needed back in Germany. And so he had gone back in Germany. And in Germany he had held a witness for Jesus Christ that cost him his life. And so he speaks to the church and warns us against peddling cheap grace. Easy believism. Telling people all you have to do is simply believe, but there's no cost involved. He wants us to realize that just as this rich young ruler was cautioned by Jesus about what it meant to follow him, so those of us today who throng these buildings and come to church or listen to the preaching of the Word or come face to face with Jesus need to understand what it means if we're going to really follow Christ, if we're going to be His and live for Him. We need a Savior. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that He has set eternity in our hearts and there is something inside us it is magnetically drawn toward Jesus. And I think that this rich young ruler, sensed this, and so he came to Jesus and fell at his feet, knowing that there was something he had to offer that he had not been able to achieve in his fame, with his power, in the vigor of his youth, or even with his money. Now Jesus, since he asks the question, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, ask him first, Why do you call me good? Do you understand to whom you're speaking? Jesus does not deny that he's God. He does not deny that he's good. If you remember in John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I and the Father are one. He that has seen me has seen the Father. So there's no denial of the deity of Christ here. Jesus is simply making the man think about who he is. And then he lists these commandments to the man. The commandments from the law. You know what God's lawyer says, Jesus, do not commit adultery. How many young people today, in thought or word or deed, could answer honestly to this question? Do not kill You know what it is to have a hateful thought when Jesus elucidated the meaning of this in his Sermon on the Mount? Do not steal, said Jesus. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. When he gives this part of the law of God, this is a searching and searing examination. And the young man answered and said, Master, all of these I have observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. Beholding him, loved him. This is an unusual young man. What a model person he would have been. But Jesus saw that something was lacking and so he speaks frankly as he deals honestly with every soul and says to him one thing thou lackest one thing thou lackest go thy way sell whatsoever thou hast give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Come, take up the cross, and follow me. What if we put that to people who join the church today? Come, take up the cross, and follow me. I am sure that the young man was perfectly sincere when he told Jesus that he had kept all of these commandments, Jesus didn't examine him on the first part of the Ten Commandments which said, Thou shalt have no other idol, but his wealth itself had been an idol. And he wasn't really willing to let go of that wealth, that security. And Jesus, because he loved him, told him to let go of it. He often stayed in the home of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. The Lord's Supper, we believe, was celebrated in the upper room of John Mark's mother's home. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. Nicodemus was probably a rich person also. Saul of Tarsus must have been a wealthy person or he would never have been able to have gone to the harvard of his day to sit at the feet of Gamaliel. He did not tell each of these to divest themselves of their wealth. But when he sees that the wealth stands between this man and his devotion to God, he tells him to forsake it. One thing thou lackest. For you it may be something else. Most of us can look at this and we tend to shrug and say, well, I get off easy on this. People say money talks and all it ever says to me is goodbye. Uh, Money is not a problem uh, for me as far as salvation is concerned because I'm not rich. And yet, when we stop to think about the favored part of the planet in which we live, with our low-calorie dog food and our electric toothbrushes, and the starving millions upon millions of Asia and Africa and South America, really, we're very rich. And I wonder The Chinese have a proverb that he who bears a full cup must have a steady hand. And do we bear that cup steadily? Do we hold it as the Lord's? Barnabas was a man in the early church of considerable wealth. And he took his goods, his his property, and sold it and used it for the benefit of the early church. Next Sunday we will look at a a little fellow by the name of Zacchaeus whose wealth does not stand in his way when he comes face to face with Jesus. But here, I think this young man thinks that he wants to keep a little security. And the security is what he wants. And yet the very thing that he wants to keep He'll never truly be able to keep. Last spring, some some of you know that I went through heart surgery a little over a year ago. And as a result of it, you have to do vigorous walking, uh, daily walking to try to get your heart beat up and keep the veins that they've transplanted uh, operating like they're supposed to. And... uh, one of my dear friends arranged for me to go out to the Biltmore Estate where I had an annual, have an annual pass and I could go and see the beautiful flowers and things there and walk. And I enjoyed walking there and I happened to be there when they were making a motion picture film and huge crews had come in from Hollywood and Peter Sellers and some other famous movie people that I'm, I don't go to movies very often so I don't know... Their names, but they were all there. And one day I got caught inside the uh, house when they were making a, uh, you know, the time when they start filming and they make everybody freeze. It got boring as everything after a long while. You have to stand very still while they go through this. They had the people that were the stand-ins there uh, for Peter Sellers to go away, and then he came in and whoever the other lady was. And they were standing outside an operating room It was in the Biltmore Estate. And it was about a huge, rich man who is running for President of the United States. He has a guy on his estate who's running for President of the United States. And I thought, my goodness, I went through heart surgery. There's operating room. When you go in that operating room, you don't know if you come down alive. You know how much you'd leave. You'd leave it all, all the Biltmore Estate, every last bit of it. If the boy died on the opera—he oh, wasn't a boy; he was an old man. If he died on the operating room table, what would he have? He can't take it with him. There's no U-haul it trailer in back of the hearse going to the station, going out to the cemetery. There's no way that he can take it. But this man wants to keep hold of some of his wealth. The love of money, the Bible tells us, is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money itself, but it's when the money is not under the lordship of Christ. When money is under the lordship of Christ, It can do good and wonderful things, but when it's not, it can do terrible things. It can give a false security to people. It can make people be like this young man who has this challenge of Jesus and who walks away from him. Now then, what is the one thing that you may lack in your own life? I'm reluctant to use this illustration, but because there are so many of you new, I'll use it again. Earl Palmer is one of the great preachers who, in the summertime you get the great preachers who come here in Montreat, and in the wintertime you get me. Uh, (laughs) But Earl Palmer came here and preached uh, a few years ago in 1972. And uh, I remember very vividly an illustration which he used because he had been hiking with some of the kids and he hiked up a mountain trail that we call suicide. Uh, It's rather a sheer place. And uh, he was saying that the thing that we cling to in life is really our God. And he used the illustration of his original parable which he calls the parable of the root. And he takes this mountain climber who's got all of his gear from mountaineering south or whatever it is. And he's bought all the best stuff. And he's going up this very sheer cliff. And he's going up thousands and thousands of feet up. And he gets almost to the very top of it. And then he reaches in back and he gets his pack loose and he flips it over on top. And then he's got all the pitons in the right place. And then he starts over the edge and slips. But he catches on a root. It's just a few feet down from the top. But he's holding to the root and dangling. Now he's taking karate and his forearms are strong so he can hold a long time. And, and he's holding on to this root with all of his life. For, for, for his life. And so he has... Help! Help! And so someone hears him and who should hear him there is a little fair going on nearby little circus with a ferris wheel and there's also a little midget over there and the midget hears him say help and so the midget comes over all 65 pounds of him and he looks over the edge and reaches his tiny little hand down and says, I'll help you, and he looks at the midget, and then he looks at the root, and he has to make a big philosophical decision. (laughs) Will he let go of the root, which is his security, and catch hold of the little midget's hand? So he says, thanks, but no thanks, and then he yells, help, again. And then his junior high school math teacher, whom he gave a nervous breakdown the year that she was to retire, hears him, and she comes over and looks over the edge and he says, "Help," But then she looks and smiles <laughs> and 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 she thinks about him for a little while and says, you know, too bad about you. (laughs) And then, of course, he calls again. And then a wonderful figure who's powerful enough and strong enough and good enough comes and reaches over. And he says to him, let go of the root and take hold of me. And so he lets go of the root and he grabs him and he pulls him to safety. Well, now this is like the rich young ruler is here. Jesus says, one thing thou lackest. One thing. Sell all that you have. Give it away to the poor. It's standing in your way. Take up your cross. Die to yourself. And boy, that dying to self is hard. And follow me, no matter where that might take you. And we may say to his everlasting credit that this young man, while he did go away, he went away sorrowful. He went away sorrowful. But now, let me tell you this. Your salvation cost God his son. And you will not get salvation cheap. Remember that, if you forget everything else I said. Your salvation cost God his son. And so you won't get salvation cheap you will get it at no bargain prices. You'll get no cheap grace. It's costly grace, but it satisfies. Peter was told that it would satisfy, and it does. I want to close now. Many, I can remember when Leighton Ford and I were at Columbia Seminary many, many years ago in 1951 or two, we went to Columbia Seminary and I can still remember Kenneth Scott Latourette, one of the greatest uh, of all of the church historians from Yale, uh, coming to lecture at Columbia Seminary. Kenneth Scott Latourette had been a classmate of William Borden. The Borden family is, of course, known to all of us who have ever used Borden products. The Bordens had been people who came over to this country years and years ago with at the same time the Bradfords and the others and they were great people. There was a young boy by the name of William Borden, Bill Borden, who was a classmate of Kenneth Scott Ladaretz. Ladaretz Latterette was an old man when he came to Columbia Seminary. And when Bill Borden, a millionaire, was a freshman at Yale University, he wrote in his notebook one Sunday after he had heard it talk. Say no to self. Say yes to Jesus every time. A steep road, hard work, but every man on this road one has one who walks with him every step of the way. And his presence tops everything. In every man's heart There is a throne and a cross. If Christ is on the throne, self is on the cross. If self, even a little bit of it, is on the throne, Jesus is on the cross in that man's heart. If Jesus is on the throne, you will go where he wants you to go. Jesus on the throne glorifies any work or any spot, if you're thirsty and he is enthroned, drink. Drinking is the simplest act there is. He that believeth on me, out of him shall flow living water. This he spake of the Spirit. To believe is to know. Because of his word, how shall I know that I have the power to meet temptation, to witness for him? I will believe his word, and it will come. Lord Jesus, I take my hands off my life as far as it is concerned, and I put thee on the throne of my heart. Change and cleanse and use me however you will. Take I take the full power of thy Holy Spirit, and I thank thee. Borden was going to be a missionary. He went to Cairo where he was to study Arabic in preparation to witness to Muslims that were in a certain part of China. He contracted cerebral meningitis and he died in Cairo. Kenneth Latteret said that he was the easiest man to pray with that he had ever seen that he enjoyed a rough tumble, and that they always had good times together. But what a great man of God he was. And this man was like the rich young ruler. His mother was sent for when he was sick. She was in London and on her way to him. The ship docked just in time to get the news that he had expired. She went to the place where he was and later wrote this letter. I do not want you to think of us as overwhelmed, for we're not. God's loving care and mercy have been evident on every side, and it's been a real joy to be in the place where William in these few short weeks became so honored in love and where he was so happy. The missionaries have all been kind. Dr. Swamer has been like a son and a brother, all in one. He loved William so much that he can hardly speak of him without his voice breaking. The nurses, they they tell me, were devoted so that they would go near to the sufferer even though they were admonished to stay away from him because of the contagion of his illness. I wanted to tell you just one thing that you may not hear from anyone else and that's this, that when we saw him it seemed as though William had been transformed into the very likeness of Christ. I should never have known him. His beard and mustache had grown and the contour of his face had changed. We had been in doubt as to whether to go to the hospital to see him at all but thank God we did we were told not to go near the bed but at a distance it would be safe we approached a long low building standing right at the ground I remember thinking those words from the gospel who will roll the stone away and then there we were in the presence of all that remained of our son I was shocked at the change And I turned to beg Joyce, that's his sister, not to look. But she had already done so. And she said in the gentlest voice, Mother, do you see how he looks just like the pictures of Christ? So I looked again, and then indeed I saw. One hardly dared speak of it to others, fearing it would be thought of as irreverent. Yes, and you only stood at the threshold, said one. If you had gone nearer, you would have seen the resemblance more clearly. I said that standing there, I could only think of the words that his visage was marred more than any man's. And then I thought of other words, that he was made perfect through suffering. His verse was Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but refuse that I may win Christ and be found in him. And the last words that she put about her son were the words from the King James Version of Mark's account of the rich young ruler and Jesus looking at him. Loved him. Are you willing to give your life to Jesus Christ? There's no telling where he'll tell you to go. But there's one thing for sure he'll want you to live 100% for him. If you would like to speak with me after the service, I'll be here at the front of the church. We won't have our concluding hymn, we'll stand now for the benediction. our Heavenly Father it's a great marvel that some of us should ever be permitted to go into the same heaven with those who have suffered so greatly for you and yet we know that when we give all that we've got that's all we've got to give and that's all you require when the fishermen left their boats and their nets they left it all When the other people who had more left what they had, they left it too. When the poor widow with two mites put it all in the offering plate, that's all she had. So help us to remember that when we give as much of ourselves as we know how to give, to as much of Jesus as we understand, that he accepts us and that he will make us what we ought to be. Lord God, deliver us from sorry, tawdry, shallow, cheap grace. Help us to take the costly grace. The grace that cost you your son. And which tells us that you've given to us all that you had to give in him. And that what you ask of us is that we give all that we have in our to you. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Savior be and abide with us all, both now and forevermore.